How do free markets help Africa? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Linda Kavuka. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Linda Kavuka. Linda is an international trade and free market supporter, an advocate of the High Court of Kenya, a Frederick Bastiat Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and an alumnus of the Atlas Network Smith Fellowship. She serves as the Director of African Programs at the world's largest youth movement for human freedom, Students for Liberty International, and is a Trade Policy Fellow at the Consumer Choice Center. Linda holds a Master's in International Trade Law from the University of Aberdeen, Diploma in Law from the Kenya School of Law, and a Bachelor's of Law from the University of Nairobi. She's also an alumnus of the Atlas Network's Think Tank MBA class of 2018. Linda, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. So Linda, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today for the episode is, how do free markets help Africa? But before we skip right to your answer, I'd like to do some context with some historical points on Africa and some points about it today. So... Of course, Africa is a large continent full of different countries, different cultures and peoples, and there will always be inaccuracies when we deal in generalities. However, we can use some of the general points to get our footing in the conversation for the one hour we have today. Um, In one of your articles you've written for The Telegraph, you lead by saying that the popular story of Africa and its history is one of poverty and inherent socialism. But then you say, contrary to popular present perception... Traditional African societies leverage free markets and trade and private property. This may come as a shock to some people with the perception they have in their heads. So why don't you take a, a few minutes and, and tell us a bit about just that point right there? Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question. And that's right. And I know um, what I will say will be isn't a popular opinion and many Africans will say this is wrong. But a study of the traditional African communities will reveal to you that African communities weren't actually socialist or communist as it is um, assumed today and advocated. Now, in the modern day world, um, libertarian ideas look at communities and societies being made up of individuals and the smallest unit is the individual, right? Now, in African societies, if you if you relate this same principle to the traditional setting, the smallest unit of an African society was known was was known to be a family, and you you could relate a family to an individual, and this is how. When it came to ownership of property, fa- land, which was like at to the heart of an African person, which it still is was owned by families. It wasn't owned by the king or the kingdom or the council of elders. Like the community divided land to families and the ownership of this land would transfer to only the members of the family. Obviously, if you are born of the family, carry their name like that. And the women, um, you're being married. So you belong to your, your husband's family. So, What you do with this land is decided by the family, not by the king or the council of elders or the chief or whoever is the ruler. It's this family that owns this land that determines what it will do with it. Will it graze? Will it farm? What will it plant? Will it plant maize or beans or yam? You know, they knew best um, what to do with their land. 
and they knew who to give what amount of land. This wasn't decided by the ruler in place or, or the council of elders who were ruling that time. So as you've seen, to the African people, the family unit was seen as the center of the community. It's like the smallest unit. Um, decisions were made like that per family. And you can, as I said, relate this family unit to be in our modern day world, equivalent to an individual. So another, another example I can give you is trade, trade routes in Africa. Different communities were famous for having different skills or um, offering different things. Like there are communities who are pastoralists and herders of animals. So they specialized in production of leather like leather skins, they knew how to cut them and preserve them and make them into cloth or like um, kind of mats, bedding mats and such stuff. Right. So this is what they used to trade um, to get, they used to butter with this to get maybe food. There are other communities that were inherently farmers and they were skilled in, because of probably their geography, where they, their, their area or their location and their skill, they would farm food like maize, beans, yams, and all sorts of potatoes in those days. So um, you, they would have to walk very long distances. Some of them even like went across, obviously, the countries that we know now. There are others that um, were smiths of gold, smiths of iron, and would make jewelry from them. And that's what they would trade. There's a photo I've seen from Twitter, permit me to put this in to, to digress for a second, where um, communities in Kenya in the early, early 1900s and 1800s were seen to be wearing iron, Iron made jewelry like chokers and bangles and like anklets. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, I noticed that that page usually shares pictures from different communities. And one thing I noticed was that some of most of those communities in, from Kenya that we know now were wearing similar jewelry. So, obviously, there's someone who was, you know, um, trading them. And someone mentioned in one of my comments that they also used iron to, as money. So these are just some of the things. And then um, some people uh, made beads and beads also were used to make jewelry. Some people are producing iron, some food, some tools of working also from uh, cutting timber down and, and joining with iron and all of that to make hose and farming tools. These people had to travel very long distances walking um, to, to exchange their goods with each other. Now, by working and uh, meeting and trading, they ended up creating trade routes that were popular. That, and these were even some of the routes that were used by um, those early explorers and then missionaries and then colonial masters in getting into the continent. The trade route, probably one person made a road it, and it became popular and it became now like a proper road and it became like a trade route and, and like that. And another thing where these routes were meeting 
there, there are specific places that markets were placed. And in the beginning, obviously these were spontaneous, right? So um, there are places where the routes met, maybe um, Traveler X and Y are coming from opposite ends and they meet halfway and they decide, wow, what do you have? And I show them and they butter trade. And probably that's how some of those markets came to life. So these markets that later became towns, big towns, trading centers, and maybe king centers of kingdoms and all of that, were not, their locations were not decided by the kings or the council of elders, but they came up out of spontaneous order, out of people interacting with each other. And this is a very classical example of um, free market policies. So um, people didn't follow routes that their kings or council of elders told them. Markets were not created by these rulers. They were created out of a spontaneous order. People did not trade only on the things that they were allowed to trade. They gave what they have in exchange for what they needed and they knew best. Right. And these trades and these items that they kept exchanging ended up forming part of people's tribal cultures that we know today. Um, like if you study about Kenya, one community that is popular is the Maasai, and it's because of the very colorful jewelry that they wear, it's beaded. You know, or um, those colorful beads, or you look at um, West African kings and queens, they have um, um, coral, specific coral beads that you would know specific to them, you know, or um, some, if you see some Nigerian tribes, there's some things that they wear, you would see like it's it has some oriental history in it and gold and all of that. So yeah, and I use these examples to tell people like these are classical principles of free markets. Right. And, you know, and this is hard proof to show you that our communities were not inherently communist or socialist. But you have to understand that many people, if we research, they actually don't understand um, what communism and socialism in as, as, as ideologies, what they actually mean. They probably mean like, you know, Africans are traveling communities and are based in communities, so they're communists. Yet there's a whole ideology about communism that is very understood, misunderstood. Yeah. Right. Yes. Just because something is community based does not necessarily mean it's a top down order or communism or anything like that. You're 100 percent correct there. And and thank you for that amazing background and context. I think that that's great and it helps set the stage for our, our, our conversation as we move for, further. Let me ask you, do you ultimately feel that the misperceptions from from people outside of Africa and in Africa, people's misperceptions of how African peoples traditionally lived, do you think that hinders people from imagining a future that emphasizes free markets? If their thoughts are detached from this rich tradition, is it hard for them to imagine moving forward, bringing back these traditions? Yeah, it's, and uh, I've just uh, yesterday engaged in a conversation where um, someone was commenting on how Africa does not need international trade and how international trade is killing Africa's markets. And obviously he touched my nerves and I went to respond how what Africa needs indeed is free markets. Right. Now, um, because if you look at, and how, I'm finding a way of how of, to say this, like our colonial history of African countries will inform how our people view capitalism. Right. And free markets. 
Also, the actions of um, those initial African uh, presidents that took over power from colonial governments, they also contributed to what African people know today as capitalism. Right, right. They define chronic capitalism as capitalism, but it isn't. Most of our governments practice a hybrid of communism, socialism, and some bits of capitalism into one. And the people now say this is capitalism. It's a man eat one society. It's evil. Then it doesn't help to have people who benefited from Western cultures to be like in the United States, the Democrats are heavily seem to be anti-capitalist. And uh, United States being a country that is emulated internationally, having people who outrightly come out to like criticize and also continue to misunderstand capitalism. And for them, it is because they've enjoyed capitalism so much that they don't know what socialism looks like. It then kind of further um, gives African people like, you know, to continue to have these sentiments and misunderstandings of what capitalism is. And because to them, free market is capitalism, they continue to reject it because they see it from, that's what they see. Right. They look into our, they, they, you know, like our generation now, uh, we, what my generation hasn't experienced um, colonialism. Our parents are the ones who experienced like early African governments after independence. So we have a generation that really has been removed from like early African traditional practices so much. And what we have is experiences of our world with um, being ruled by African presidents and them forming what we know as like political ideology. And from our experiences, seeing people who come into power, who come to plunder, are corrupt, take everything from the people, who are used by some Western governments or enter into some dubious deals to the detriment of the people, they're the ones who make people, they, they define what these ideologies are, mm-hmm. and this now contributes to what people think and believe. And because of what they have seen, they continue to reject free markets. And no matter, like, and it's for, for people like us who are now trying to tell them, like, first of all, you have a misunderstanding of what this is. It's, it now becomes very difficult to convince them that they have even gotten the description of what they are against wrong before we even get to looking at the ideology. So in your, in your mind, then, the, the, the project of liberalism and free market ideology and, and, and trade and open societies, this isn't just an, an economics project in Africa. This is also a cultural project, too, right? You have to spread these ideas from a, from a, from a philosophical perspective as much as an economic perspective. Indeed, and um, we at Students for Liberty um, have found ourselves in the past, in the years that we have been in existence, about seven years now or eight years in Africa, we, w- we were always in the stage of beginning because we're interacting with people who feel that what we are discussing is foreign, yet it isn't. Who feel uh, because of the ideas we are promoting, I have been told this, one of my colleagues at the law firm while I was advocating for just taxes, was telling me that I've been bought by the West. <laughs> so you can imagine, and then, um, you know, 
these the kind of organization libertarian organizations aren't common in the region and we've brought them here so people just see like oh this is a western idea that has no place here and they re- reject listening to what you're saying right. because of your affiliation so it then becomes a difficult task of beginning from scratch posing the idea to them finding local experiences that we can create and relate to these people to teach them um, proper uh, meaning of free markets and the impact of free markets in their lives. So it's been an interesting journey for us um, across the continent, meeting with uh, students and, and, and students in campus and recent graduates, you know, telling them about classical liberal ideas and um, asking them to join us, join the movement of liberty, you know, introducing them to economic writers that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And and it's been amazing. Now, for us in Africa, we have one um, professor that we love to celebrate. I don't know if you've heard about him. His name is Professor George Ayite, and he's based in the United States. So he is one person who's given his life to share and to criticize and to promote free markets free markets and like um, free market economics in Africa, pointing out all those uh, wrong things, the governance issues. And um, he's now an elderly person, but he's someone who experienced those early governments and he has a lot of articles and he has a book that he has recently written, Economics for Africa, a big book that now um, shares all these um, sentiments and ideas, including the misconceptions of African traditional histories. And, you know, the purpose is to teach Africans the truth about free markets, the benefits of free markets, and to see how to implement it as a way to alleviating the poverty that we face now. And and you touched on colonialism before, and and I don't really think that point can be overstated because I I would think it's very important for people to remember the hundreds of years of colonial history that has plagued Africa. I mean, many start their timelines, as we said before, with perceptions of Africa as a poor continent. It's a war-plagued continent, and other countries are simply trying to help. Uh, Not only is that a very Western-centric and possibly racist view, quite frankly, but of course it's true too that nations and empires have had decades and hundreds of years of destroying peaceful ways of life in Africa, leaving behind, most, perhaps most importantly, broken institutions and rules, uh, including broken rules around property and rights. And, and you've done a talk on this I've seen before, so I'm not sure if, if you're comfortable right now off the top of your head talking about a couple of examples. But in that talk I saw, it was very interesting, the, the, the few examples you brought up that explain how the, even the rules and institutions around property rights in, in certain African countries were just completely destroyed by some of the broken rules and, and ways of life that yeah. the colonialists left behind. Yeah, so as I said, remember how um, African communities were, were set up? We didn't have the borders that we have today. They didn't exist. Some of our communities right now, like they, they, they are spread across different countries. So... I come from African communities, okay, the way we studied in Kenya, are divided into four or five major groups. And that's like the Bantu-speaking people, the Nilots, the Kushites, and the Semites. Four, four major groupings. So um, these major groupings were kind of, they migrated from their original um, home base, and they traveled to different places 
as some settled and some moved on. Now I'll pick the Bantu that I'm connected to. The Bantu people are said to have originally came from, come from the Congo mountains, just like the Congo, Zaire, uh, Central Africa area. And they migrated um, to the east. Some stayed in the central part, some are in the Southern African part. If you travel to countries from Kenya down southwards, some communities, if they've come from the Bantu group, our language is similar. Right. And when we speak is when you will, we'll, and some, some of us understand each other. And um, some of, of our official features are the same, some aren't, because this was just a huge tribal group that now divided into many, many little groups that are spread across the region. But you can imagine like that whole area have people who, who have similar languages, uh, like have shared um, cultures and language and all of that. Obviously, the way people owned land, some communities were ruled by, some, some were kingdoms, some were ruled by council of elders, not necessarily a king or a chief. These communities, obviously, because of how they formed their governance systems, they had their own different ways of managing their issues. But one common thing all these communities had was the way they resolved issues. It wasn't the king who decided or the chief for those who had them. They always had advisors who debated issues and came with a consensus or something, and then he just like decreed it. It's like the way a jury decides a matter in the United States and then the, the, the judge will announce the sentence, but didn't really uh, decide it individually. So uh, property and the property that is central to us is land, therefore was owned uh, in specific ways and transferred in specific ways. So when colonialism, when colonial rulers came into the continent, they, they were subduing these communities first by like, you know, um, getting on the side of the kings and the council of elders, talking to them, convincing them and slowly dividing and conquering them until ownership of these lands were eventually transferred to the colonial governments. So what the systems we have today are an adoption of colonial history. So um, the countries that are like, I come from Kenya, which is in the Eastern part of uh, Africa. Most of our countries in the East uh, were colonized by the British. So our history is, is heavily adopted from like the British systems, right. all our laws. Yeah, some of them they've even already repealed, but we still have them here as they designed them. And, and so it was brought, they decided their way completely disregarding the common operations of the communities and you know how they did their things as depending on where they stayed, their locations. And it was forgotten. Now, after independence, this was the opportunity for the African leaders who finally took over power to give back what was taken away to the people. But what did they do instead? Serious plunder. And from there on, it's been downwards from there. Look at countries like Somalia. I think 
the way um, these early presidents ruled made Africans really angry and you know, power, power that was once belonging to the community has been pushed to the center that it became desirable for everyone to, to, to want to acquire. So now it's a power game. And in some places like Somalia, like Congo, Burundi, uh, led to political instabilities, South Sudan for decades. And, and why? Everyone is fighting for this central power because they've seen if you're in this position, you own everything, you do what you want. Right. Well, and um, if you look at African history and um, again, back to some of those early presidents, Mobutu Seseko of uh, Congo, DRC Congo, stole so much money. I think they even say somewhere that he once stole an amount that is equivalent to the budget of the country. Uh, in Nigeria, they had uh, one president called Sania Bacha. He stole so much, so much money that it has been recently being sent back to the current government now. Imagine that. Hmm. Like, loots, loots from maybe his 70s there is being sent right now. And those, those are just two. There are others and um, dictators like the late uh, Mugabe from Zimbabwe. You've been in power over 30 years, you know. His house is has a nickname called the Blue Roof because of how magnificent it was and how far you can see the roof wherever you are. Meanwhile, if you look at the kind of poverty in these countries and how people are suffering, it's interesting. South Sudan, their politicians usually live in Kenya and Uganda. And guess why? Because these countries are safer anyway. So they they operate from outside of the country, managing people who are suffering in the country. Right. And they have serious nepotism in South Sudan that usually leads to their, their wars, their civil unrest. And their civil unrest is very violent, often ends with, you know, people being killed, social workers, international workers, people who, who move from Kenya to go and, and work. There are women being raped, kids being uh, recruited as child soldiers. And that I know you've heard about in the past, there's a lot of things about child soldier and movies made about, about that. And these are things that came out from African countries like South Sudan and Congo because of all those year, decades of civil unrest and now Somalia. Yeah. So if you, if you see, there was a problem by colonialism that, that happened. And there was also an opportunity to correct the problem. But at that time, I think the hearts of men had become greedy mm-hmm. and they had already learned from the colonial masters. They saw how the colonial masters took everything from the people and how much power it had, it gave them. So those who took over power, they ended up being the best students of colonialism, of the colonial masters. And when they got the opportunity to rule the people, instead of giving back power to the people as what was expected, they became worse than the colonial masters. And now we are now dealing with impacts of effects of the actions of these early presidents. Like there's a lot of corruption in the continent, it is known. Africa is very rich, actually, if you think about it. In terms of Africa is blessed with mineral resources in abundance. If it's agriculture, 
you know, the kind of geography we have and temperature to support the growth of all, all kinds of fruits, vegetables, name it. And also the manpower. But because of the kind of leadership we have in our modern day world, corruption, you know, um, the poor governance we have and the poor systems and the broken systems, and the fact that some people know that if they bring order, the people benefit and we lose interest in them, mm -hmm. they cannot let this happen. They benefit from the chaos because you will be surprised to find out that in those years that people were fighting in Congo, um, there were rumors that different powerful people were benefiting from their resources in the country. Like external, source, external people had control of some land in Congo because those lands had like resources, including people usually say like some Chinese, mining legally and all of that. And you and the same for South Sudan, because like South Sudan is home of like where their major oil fields are. And the, that area has been having years of civil unrest. And when they, you know, when you take away everything from people, they get to the point that they have nothing more to lose. Mm -hmm. So then they are willing to die and to just to fight for their freedom. And you and you said in one of your articles, I believe it was in the same one that, that was published in the Telegraph I mentioned earlier, that quote now, poverty, literacy rates, and youth unemployment are part of a long list of Africa's biggest challenges, but at the top of this list is corruption. And I think that sums up pretty much what you were just saying there, of course, but it also strikes me as interesting that when a lot of people, especially in Western countries that may even have the best intentions and, and the best sentiments in mind, think of Africa and many of the countries and the problems it faces, if they don't look into it further, they just think of a country that may have poverty, a literacy rate problem, and unemployment, and, and maybe it's just an, an economic thing. Um, perhaps African countries can't just get on, on their feet. This may be the perception people in, in the West sometimes have. But as you were just saying, especially because of the, the colonial institutions and the types of corruption that, that was left behind that, even if somebody says theoretically that African countries should be under a state of free markets, that this corruption problem is obviously huge. You can't have free markets and trade and peace between peoples and prosperity if there's no structure or institutions that will support that kind of rule of law and that stability. Yeah, that, that, that's, that is actually free markets only works in an environment that is sensible, where systems work. And when the systems are broken, it's very difficult for you to, to say, oh, do not tax people unfairly. Allow them to trade properly. Allow them to move to where they feel best. Right. It, it can't work out. It can't work out. And because these people who are cartels and are uh, blocking the progress of others for their own gain would say, if I stop what I'm doing right now, it means I'm losing income. So there are people who stand to lose income if systems work in Africa. Right. Will they let their income go easily? It's, it's to be debated. So there's incentives at play to keep the corrupt systems and structures going, of course, because there's elite groups that are benefiting. There are elite groups that are benefiting, and these elite groups kind of usually fund some of the politicians and government. Mm -hmm. So it's like a rub my back, I scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of engagement. And it's very difficult to break down these systems when when the justice they they bribe the justice system so there's nowhere to turn to 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 sentence to like um take a case against them charge them and sentence them where will you go if the if the court is in their hands 
you know, if they if they are the ones who put the politicians in in where they are, you know, like for you to contest for a political position in many African countries, it's very expensive. First of all, you have to belong to uh, one of the main political parties if you need to have a chance. And getting in isn't easy. You need connections, right? Mm-hmm. So you obviously have to drive your way around. They have their charges, as obviously they're looking for money, so you pay. Okay, so you 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 for you to get their the candidacy under a specific party that is popular, it's very controversial. So it, it all involves money, and when you do, um, the way our politics has been hijacked by our corrupt systems, in that uh, you bribe the poli- the populace for them to vote for you, and why will they accept? Because of the systemic poverty. So you, do you see how all of this is connected? Mm-hmm. If systems work, if I am able to provide the very basic necessities for myself, it means I would be listening to the, a politician and judge them according to merit. But if I'm someone who is very desperate, you know, and I work for less than a dollar a day, I survive on less than a dollar a day with my household, if a politician comes to offer me $5, I'll take it, won't I? Right. Because I'm not even assured of getting it when I go to work out today as a casual laborer. So, you know, they need that money. And for, def- and thus, for you to even be a politician in an African country, you have to be wealthy. You have to be wealthy, whether legal or illegal. So you may be a business person and enter into politics and the amount of money you spend, I think the incentive for the money they spend is that you're going to get it back. Because if you're in a, a role of leadership, you'll be offering tenders, depending on what you're aiming for. You'll be offering tenders. You'll, you'll pitch your company for that. You know, you'll be given budgets for working for different institutions. You'll steal that. There'll be opportunities for many things. You'll put your family there and your people and on and on. And so it continues. So. Ours is like a, a, such a deep cycle. And, and in my country right now, and even I know under the African Union, you will find that corruption is something that they, they are posing, they, they present as an issue that they are fighting heavily and they are putting resources into it. Uh, our president, Uhuru Kenyatta in Kenya, even uh, when he came into power for his last term, was recent in 2017 was saying that you know corruption is at the top of his agenda and you know government officers found guilty will be prosecuted we've been seeing the cases and the amount of the charges it's ridiculous but then the trial of the cases has been like a charade to us mm-hmm. we the populace we see the problem where it is but the will to actually fight that corruption isn't there on the government and and so we feel like powerless, like if the system, if the court cannot prosecute these people and they walk scot-free, then they continue to steal. And the others know that nothing will happen depending on how, you, how well you're connected. So corruption continues to be a problem. And right now, some people even say that, oh, in countries like Kenya, corruption is in the blood of all of them. They are born with the seed of corruption. It has become the norm so much so that even in private institutions, there is corruption. There is not just limited to public services, even in the private sector. 
countries like Nigeria now, like Nigerian people will tell you the country is broken. The country is broken. Corruption is so deep. It's so deep, like if you attempt to fight it, you may then be killed. You know, like it's it's so deep that right now, um, a good number of the young people, anyone who can afford it, they're leaving the country because they're saying they've lost hope. It's not working. Corruption is too much in the government from top down, in companies everywhere. And it's very difficult for a country to, to function that way. Imagine now the other huge number of people, majority of which in the continent are poor, have no way out. They can't, where will they go? You don't have money to take you. you there's a limit as to how much education you can get, first of all. Mm-hmm. There's a limit as to the opportunities you can access in your country to make an income. So you, you don't have a choice. And if you're born in such environments, like many different people I've seen in Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, just all over the country, the continent. When, you, when you're born in environments like you feel like you're surrounded by severe poverty, you can't, all you think about is breaking the shackles of poverty. If you're interested in leadership, when you get there, what will you do? It will be your time to eat, as we commonly say here. So um, we have to, to fight corruption. It's, it's, it's the role of everyone in the community, all stakeholders, because it's not, it's not just in one place. It's not just in one form. It's even in it's a mentality, it's an action that we all need to be sincere about fighting, speaking about it, teaching about it, and and hopefully we'll start to see change. And I'm going to have to hold us there for the break, Linda. So we'll take our break right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Linda Kavuka. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Vincent Geloso, Amy Willis, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Linda Kavuka today. So, Linda, I think the first part of our conversation was great. You provided a lot of context and, 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 a lot for, and especially the context for a lot of the problems that different countries in Africa faces. So, as many of us know, the past few decades have seen African countries heavily reliant on foreign aid. You have said that this doesn't actually help ultimately a lot of the problems we talked about in the first half, especially that a lot of foreign aid perpetuates corruption by enriching the powerful more than anything else. Um some people may just throw up their hands and say, well, if, if this kind of help doesn't do anything, what what can be done? Obviously, this episode is about free markets, so we're going to talk a bit about that. So on the one hand, can you first talk about how some misconceptions around foreign aid and, and why they actually might make things worse? And then, of course, on the other hand, talk about why free markets are ultimately the solution and not foreign aid. Because of the some of the issues we spoke about, I spoke about earlier. Now, um, Many, many, many challenges came up. Uh, and because of all this plunder and corruption and poor governance, there's a lot of um, underdevelopment of regions in, in, in the sense of infrastructure, 
you know, lack of proper networks. Um, they did early governments did not invest in institutions like education and health, especially these two. So you find the 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 schools that are accessible to the majority who are poor are in very deplorable condition, including in some areas where kids usually study under trees and all of that. Sanitation, health, uh, having people dying from diseases that have been eradicated or contained in the West, like malaria, cholera. You know, malaria, cholera, um, high cases of HIV, and, and, and early infant mortality, among many others. These uh, international organizations created, uh, I don't know if say institutions or projects and programs to support um, these poor communities and governments in offering uh, services or health or school and all of that to its people. So if you if you travel to Africa now, you will find so many UN uh, organizations in the continent. And when it comes to uh, development and health, agriculture, education, name it, all those things that need support, there's always some some form of UN projects too to deliver UN and, and, and also uh, later years, you have projects that are supported by the USAID, you have projects that are supported by the DFID and DPID, DIPD. Okay, because of the civil wars that we had, there was external help from, from international countries to help African states like end the war and create, uh, have peace and war so that they, um, have proper governances. So then, I don't know, those, that, that was like the foundation of aid, aid support. One thing led to the other, and now the governments have access to millions of dollars for these projects and for these reasons. Someone is already providing that support, so why bother investing in it? Now, someone else, as we mentioned, our politicians are inherently corrupt. So these are now opportunities for people to steal. Is this support getting to the intended target? How is this support getting to them? Is it being sent directly or through the government agency? And we know the way it, the programs are set up, they, 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 have to be, they have to come through the government. So whether whether the aid that is usually sent to the continent is used for the intended purpose is very questionable. And in, in most cases, we know that that support really doesn't help these people. Now, because of decades of these same actions, we've had now a generation that is heavily dependent on this kind of support. And if you look at how the projects that are done and the kind of support that is given, doesn't really help people to become sustainable. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you come to an environment and you want to support women and their businesses, so you post to them an idea that isn't theirs and you create a training for making dresses. It's a good idea. 
Then they sign up because what option do they have? And then they go and set and you give them those who finish the course, probably you set up, you give them grants to open a business and they have a business and now they're supporting their families. Mirror this with actually teaching these people about trade. You could still, and then teach them, let them think of what they want to do with themselves trade-wise, help them build those ideas, and you can, in the end, offer them a loan to start off, and then they pay back. I, feel, I strongly feel like if you, if you allow people to be self-sufficient, and if you allow people to come up with their own ideas and support them to be dependent on themselves in the long run, you're kind of telling them the truth of what their world is because you cannot depend on someone forever, can you? And when this aid is sent to Africa, it's coming from taxpayer money from another or another country. And the person being taxed is being taxed for the, the tax money should be used for their own sake, not to come and correct the problems that have been created by someone else in another world. That, is it fair? Does it make sense? How would African people feel if mm -hmm. our governments would tax us and the money would be sent to Middle East? And they know this. While some of our people would be wealthy and af they could afford this, some would not be. And maybe those resources would be used for, for them or to give better services. So these are like issues people don't think about when they think of aid where it comes from, you know, how, how it's collected, the purpose, and where it's, where it's coming. Another thing is, you know, how when you're supporting people with aid, these projects are usually for a specific purpose, but the people it is intended to help aren't part of the process to determine the project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can only help, the best way to help a community is by allowing them to see a problem come up with a solution for the problem. And if it's support that they need, ask, and the support be given to them directly. If you do it in that approach, then you will actually have really helped the people. You would have identified the people with, who need help and helped them. But the aid structures that we have in Africa right now do not guarantee that this funding will get to the intended audience. And all these scandals that you've seen from different African countries have shown massive plunder of aid funding by governments. And then they aren't accountable. Do these um, aid institutions stop, hold our governments accountable or, or reduce the money they give them? They keep giving them more money. They keep stealing it. You know, modern day young Africans who are educated and know better have been talking on social media, even tagging World Bank, USAID, and all of them, stop sending money to our government, stop sending money to our governments, but this goes to deaf ears. You know, and we know that um, some of these problems are difficult and it's okay to help, but can we at least review the process of helping Africans and our African communities? Like, indeed, there's a, there are great problems. Can we at least um, um, look at the elephant in the room and research where is the origin of this problem? Because if you do not see the background and appreciate it, and you come up with a solution 
ignoring the where it has come from, I think your solution won't be sustainable. You have to see where it has come from and come up with a solution that lasts, that makes sense, that is community-based, that when you leave, these people will be able to support themselves and avoid the repetition of that same problem. And, and I think one thing that you mentioned in the first part of our conversation too ties into this very nicely. You, you mentioned that people like to talk about state corruption and political corruption all the time. And although that is a problem, you also mentioned that we have to remember there's also private forms of corruption too. So even someone saying, well, you know, we've given this business here alone or, or we've, we've somehow made this foreign aid work out so it trickles down to some sort of private interest. As you were saying, if you trace the money, in many cases that private interest or private entity could also be corrupt too if they're connected in with the right politicians. So it sounds like to me what you're saying is that ultimately we need more enablement of bottom-up solutions and education of the communities in Africa rather than just, oh, well, maybe this government gets some money here, this company gets some money here from the top down, so to speak. Yeah, and um, you know, I'll just speak about the last thing that you had asked me before. How, what, what role does free markets play here? How does it come in to correct these problems? First, people like to often ignore the problem that is leading to the challenges African people are suffering, facing now, and the levels of poverty we have is because of poor governance, it's because of corruption, it's because of you know, nepotism, it's because of chronic capitalism. These are the things that are the elephant and that we have to address and correct them. For governance, we have to teach our people about, expose our people to what governments ought, should, ought to be, we have to hold our leaders accountable. We have to strengthen our systems of justice to be able to sentence and uh, to be able to charge and sentence um, officials in the private and the public sector who are guilty of corruption. And when you sentence them, then you have to recover the funds and put them back to proper use. You know, and if we fight corruption, the next thing is to look at underdevelopment infrastructure, for example. There's a farmer in a rural part of the country who is toiling every day in the farm to make good food produce. So when it's time to harvest, they're looking for markets for their produce. Because the roads are bad and because they're poor, they can't afford to even transport it to the buyer themselves. So there's a middleman. The middleman, um, the middleman, it's like praise on their ignorance, praise on their like uh, poverty, and rips them off. Middleman brings the goods, buys at almost nothing from them to come and make a big, huge profit in the country, in in the capital or something like that. Mm -hmm. You see, then if if the systems would work, in that um, there was a proper road structure there was a fair market. This uh, person was educated enough to be able to see how to form into a company or look for neighbors to form a company, you know, contribute to it, get a loan, um, find a way to have their own produce from the farm to the buyers. If they had that knowledge, 
they wouldn't then then the middleman wouldn't be taking advantage of them. You're saying it's it's not enough to, as you said, teach someone how to, to sew a dress and work for a company. It's it's not enough for even someone to be given a company. There needs to be a, a framework that exists that allows people to flourish in ways that they self-direct in ways that they want to through that spontaneous order you you mentioned earlier. Yeah, through through the spontaneous order and and that ties on to like um if you look at the index of ease of doing business. African mm-hmm. countries are performing really poorly in, in that index, which means like, you know, if the environment is already toxic for me to do business in, how will I make an honest living with my trade, whatever it is? And since right. our economy is heavily depend on agriculture, how will I make money from my produce when the environment is toxic? First of all, um, getting um, like, um fertilizers is difficult it's monopolized by some governmental institution like in the case of my country in kenya so if it's already a challenge and it's not easily accessible can you imagine the stress a farmer goes through they only access these fertilizers at specific times in the in the year right you know and then because of that centralized uh selling the, it's so difficult for them to get this high demand. You may get it, you may not. You may have to keep going. Okay, uh, pro, um, planting, and that's the cost of the seed is the same as the fertilizer. Getting manpower to help you or doing it yourself with your family, you know. Okay, uh, finding resources to get the like um, maybe the medicine, insecticides, and all of that after the produce is ready. So you need to look for a uh, market. Now, here, now we, we bring policy into place. If I was to create a company, how, how am I going about it? So for many countries, it's very difficult. It's not as easy as it seems. You don't just go online and fill a form and pay and you have a company. For some of us, it's very a strenuous process that involves back and forth and a lot of legal jargon and follow-up. And it takes a long time. You pay, you, you set up the company. Then the next step is, oh, depending on what you want to do, a number of regulations are waiting for you to pay for this and that license. I am yet to even begin. Then the taxman requires me to register and begin paying taxes. So you can imagine that burden for this poor farmer who just wants to sell their produce and get something out of it considering the background that they come from. When, so I, I usually feel like um, sometimes when some of our laws are, are, are passed, they're not really having the, the, the best interest of the vulnerable at heart when passing them. You're expecting people to pay a license and taxes, assuming that they can afford it, while they don't even have that income for starters to get the certificate and all that. So there's, there's the law and then um, infrastructure and then now bring the police into question in the event that you have even a dispute, will the police help you or will they rip you off? So because of all this stress, someone would look at the process of doing business legally and look at doing it illegally and they would decide to just do it their own way. They may be ripped off, they may not make much, but what option do they have? So if you are sincere about ending poverty and wanting to have a a continent that has people who 
are working and making an honest living for themselves, stakeholders have to play their part. And for the government, as we, we, we are advocating for a limited government, government should allow people to trade. The buyer and the seller know best. The buyer knows what they're selling and the seller, the buyer knows what they want to buy and the seller knows what they're selling. Seller wants the money and the buyer needs the produce. I think this is like basics of Adam Smith's writings or Frederick Hayek. They're the ones who know about this engagement that the relationship that they have. So if the state feels like it needs to interfere, what role is it playing? And if indeed it needs to, the role we know as we advocate, it needs to be as little as, uh, as possible or shouldn't even be in that relationship. And as you said before, if the, if the structures beneath allowing the buyer and the seller to do whatever they want without a middleman are also corrupt, that's also a problem too. Because what happens if there's a case of fraud? Well, if you go to a court and yeah. it sorts it out fairly, that's one thing. If you go to a court and you pay mm-hmm. the judge off or, or, the, or the lawyers off and they that's decide a certain problem. way, that's a problem. Exactly. So the state needs to really, cons- really look at the role it plays in trade especially. And in trade, if you think about it, the role of the government is mostly on the systems and to create an environment that works. If our people are able to make, an, even just make money, no matter how little it is, if they make money, it means they're able to afford the basic necessities of, of living. Like they can afford to live in a better home and not live in a shack that is hygienic, that has a toilet. They can afford to pay school fees for their children up to at least even secondary level, all of them. You know, they can afford to go to hospital Mm -hmm. and not die at home. And, you know, then we would be looking at who is considered the poor. It's like looking at a poor person in Switzerland and a poor person in Congo. They are both considered poor in those societies, but their lives are very different. So, you know, we, we in Africa, like, we can't be singing the same song over and over. And it's time to actually put words into action. And for me, um, one of the main reasons I decided to become an active human being was seeing the suffering of our people. This is actually what led me to study law. And then later on, joined the, the movement of liberty. But you know, I still practice law uh, right now with a focus in international trade law, and also through um, engaging with students for liberty, involved with advocating for free market ideas and liberty and more freedom. So there is there, indeed there is hope for Africa. It's not all gloom. Because um, I'm here, aren't I? And um, I found a way to learn free markets and see what the problem is and see what ought to be done. And um, if more people would bring themselves up and actually like play their part, for me, I'm doing the teaching. There are others who are in parliament. There are others who are practicing law. There are judges. There are others who now they're in government, they're making these policies. If we all, you know, actually have the best interest of that very vulnerable person at heart, we would see that free markets would actually help us alleviate Africa out of our systemic poverty. And that, you know, people would at least 
be able to afford the basics. And anyone who wanted to, to do business or access opportunities can do that. I don't see how, why this is possible in Canada and the United States and it isn't in South Africa and in, in, in Kenya, why it's difficult. Like, that's what we should aim for, allowing people to come up with ideas and be able to pursue them and have an environment that actually allows them to come up with ideas and, and solutions to problems and implement them and let their only problem be making a profit out of it, not having to deal with looking for um, the very basics of living. And this is such an amazing train of thought. And, and as I look at the clock, as our time winds down here, we could obviously spend hours and hours on this, but I, I want to make sure we get at least one more point in before we wind down. And uh, so shifting gears just a little bit, Linda, I, I, often people say that, of course, one of the things that goes hand in hand with a, a free market and a free market structure and, and that kind of society is, of course, uh, free movement. And you've talked about this and you've written a bit about of it. Can, can you spend just a couple minutes on the, the state of free movement in Africa generally and, and what needs to be done to improve it or, or sustain it in your eyes, however the case may be? Interesting question. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but travel within Africa is very expensive. Traveling maybe from Kenya to, in fact, traveling to Morocco requires me to leave the continent and come back. Like I have to go either to Europe or to the Middle East and come back. Does that make sense to you? No. And uh, all this is because of policies. You know, why can't African governments um, come together to have agreements over air policies, air travel policies. What's so difficult about that? You can easily, if you have a Schengen visa, travel across Europe, but traveling across Africa is another challenge. First, it's very expensive because of the taxes you pay. Some of our governments, like my country, charge very high taxes. So because of, and, and the taxes obviously will be moved to the passenger if it's by air for air travel. And then because of not um, investing in infrastructure, road travel can only get you to some places. Okay, at least between Eastern and Southern Africa, you can take a road, you can take a bus through, like you can take a bus from Kenya down to South Africa. It'll take you a while, but you can do that. There's a road network. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't travel to Congo the same way. It's a challenge, it's risky. There'll be places where maybe I'll be getting to the forest or maybe there's not even a path. I can't travel to West African countries because I have to pass through Congo. Congo is the link of Eastern and, and the Western part, but there isn't. Now, another thing, uh, the, and uh, we don't have proper train systems. Most of the train systems we have are those ones that were built during those colonial days. So African countries have been improving them, but there hasn't been kind of a, like an agreement of having like a network that connects different places together. We are yet to get that. There was a plan to have like a chain system connecting Eastern Africa, but the, the plan didn't go through and we don't know how that goes, but there's a chain system in Kenya that was supposed to go up to the border with Uganda, but then that plan crashed and it's still within Kenya. Then there was a plan from, to have that train go up to Tanzania, but um, it didn't work out that way. And, um, and in the West Africa, I know we can say the same thing, roads and bridges, and also um, like ferry systems. 
some of our countries are connected by rivers, like the Eastern African countries are connected by Lake Victoria, but you won't find us using the ferry so much, like as in properly, even for tourism. And the last thing is, and we have a very negative attitude to, we call ourselves, we call like someone from another African country would be referred to as a foreigner. Just look at the xenophobic attacks in South Africa. Who are being attacked? Is it people from UK or US or Canada? No, Africans from Kenya, mostly Nigeria, Somalia, Ethiopia. Why? The citizens of South Africa are saying that foreigners are coming to their country and the state is supporting them allowing them to settle and have business and make money that is rightfully theirs. Can you believe that sentiment? And you'd be surprised to find that it's like a shared sentiment across the continent. That is the reason why, despite African countries being members of a number of regional economic communities, they are usually not able to come up with serious plans to connect each other because of all those political and, and issues that you don't even understand. Kenya today is home of one of the largest refugee camps in the continent called Dadaab. And in Dadaab camp, you will find um, refugees from Somalia, Sudan, um, all, uh, or some from Congo, some from who went there a long time ago from Rwanda, Burundi, Somalia, Ethiopia, they're there. These people, unfortunately, they are restricted to these camps. It's almost impossible for them to enter the country and like, you know, like get asylum. They are locked there. And their best hope is um, leaving the continent to seek asylum in Canada, United States, Australia, mostly Schengen countries. And that's what you usually apply for. And obviously, that's a very long process, a very long process that you can and you can't get. So some of them have been have grown up, have been born in these camps. They've been there all their life and they're still there. So if you someone would wonder what, why aren't why doesn't Kenya allow them? Kenyan people will tell you, we're already hosting them, let them go back home. That's their problem. Yet you'll find Kenyans in Canada looking for asylum. You'll find Kenyans in, in America. You'll find African presidents right now joining the Black Lives Matter movement, yet refugees from Eritrea who are found in the, in, in the capital city of Nairobi, they're usually, usually deported back home. And these people had a reason for leaving their country because Eritrea right now is, is under crazy dictatorship. So if they leave looking for a better life and they're usually in transit by road to South Africa and Kenya is like a place they is transiting, Kenya finds them, sends them back to Eritrea, like what is the place of um, value of the human African life in that? So we have a very negative um, approach to immigration and movement of people and settling of African people across the continent. Like African governments haven't really warmed up to it. There are no proper structures for it. So for example, um, you know, okay, immigrating to an African country and working there, how, how is that, right? Most people who are, have immigrated out of their countries to others are, are there illegally. They're doing business, yes, but they don't have proper documents because it's either it's too expensive or impossible for them to get the legal documents. And why is this so complicated? Like, why? 
for you to in a country for you to come and like um workers have a business you have to pay like a lot of money just to get the certificate probably uh i think it's about maybe 2000 US dollars for 2 years something like that or more mm. so for someone who leaves their country remember african people are proud and love their home for someone who's living their home country is they're living because of they're looking for a better living they're looking for a better life that 2000 dollars could be all they have to start them up or they don't even have up to that amount so if you if you wonder you know if if our governments would make it easy for african people to settle in other countries even as asylum seekers or even as green card holders just allow them to work tax them wouldn't it make the the continent better because these people they've said they want to come and work and if anyone is found guilty of crime charge them into the court system no one is refusing but locking people out of the continent out of the country saying that they are thieves that they're coming to steal or they're they're not trustworthy or not that it's just it's a very unfair sentiment and if if other continents would treat african people in the same way there would be an outcry wouldn't international outcry of racism but we are very 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 guilty of the same worst actions right here in africa and i feel like if african countries opened up their borders for immigrants for refugees to settle and find their own way yes jobs are scarce life is hard but let them attempt isn't let them attempt is the government giving them a, we're not saying that the government should give them handouts no let them work just allow them to be here give them proper paperwork if deport the ones who commit crime no problem but allow them to settle and work i think um there's so much potential in in how much africa could get out of allowing people from neighboring countries to just settle and work there's so much value so much manpower to to get and we would be saving lives our people wouldn't be um stolen and enslaved like in libya what is happening now our people wouldn't be dying in the red sea or in atlantic ocean as they are right now escaping the continent just to find a better living here Linda, we, we've talked about a lot in this episode, and unfortunately, our time has completely wound down now. So I'm going to ask us to bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. In every episode, I want the guests to have the last word. So let me ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how free markets help and will help, can help Africa? If, if we could sum up everything we've talked about and you want to leave someone with that one final thought or one final sentiment, what, what would that be? The African Union actually... came up with an agreement that puts free markets into practice and this agreement is called the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement so far most of the african countries have signed it but only about half have ratified it meaning like it's now in the next steps of being uh, implemented into their domestic laws here is a plan to create africa's first common market all africa's common market and it seeks to be the largest in number of members after the world trade organization if it goes through i, I strongly believe that um free markets is the answer to alleviating africa from the systemic poverty which i mentioned earlier free markets will allow african countries to trade with each other more than it does right now free markets allow us to connect the continent that is currently disconnected 
and it will allow us to embrace each other, find our common common things with each other that we don't know right now. And it will also improve the quality of life of the people and also the outlook of the continent to the world generally. If we share uh, similar, more similar interests and, and goals, I think we will all be invested in making Africa work. And you know, the future generation of leaders like myself would have hope of staying home and not relocating elsewhere because Africa will show me that there's hope for the future and I would want to be part of the solution to making Africa better. Challenges on us right now. So um, this progress has been stalled by um, the COVID-19 pandemic. The agreement was supposed to go into operation this year. However, I hope that all, all the past um, actions by African member states of the African Union will not play out with this agreement. I hope that all of them will have political will. I hope that all of them will look past COVID-19 and not um, favor protectionism when we're busy trying to create a common market. I strongly believe that free trade will save Africa. Linda Kavuka, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much for the invite. I, I enjoyed the conversation with you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.